0: Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hespler Baptist Church, located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray that this is an encouragement to you and to anyone else you share this with. everyone. Thank you, Mark, for leading us in song and opening our service for us. And so good to hear the voice of another of our elders this morning in the pastoral prayer. So thank you, Scott, for leading us in doing that so thoughtfully and with considerations to the flock that we are called to shepherd here at Hespler. I hear that and hear your heart in that. So thank you, brother, very much for doing that. A significant day for us as a congregation, we have a, a, a serious and, and large decision ahead of us after uh, this morning's service, just as a little bit of an insight as to how that feels for Sergey and Kelsey, as I was interacting with Sergey this weekend, he says, it's like downloading something from the internet or a video game, that last 1% just seems to take the longest, uh, you know, and they're waiting uh, on us. And uh, either way, the course of their lives will be altered uh, depending on how the Lord leads us as a congregation this morning. So I'm trying very hard to uh, keep that for after the service, but it's on my mind. It's on. We prayed about it, as we should. I'm sure it's on your minds as well. But uh, before we get there, uh, we have something uh, extremely significant to consider as we continue to worship and hear from God through His Word. A few weeks ago, while on vacation with family we visited the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry. And one of the uh, exhibits that uh, they had was a pretty incredible mirror maze, which I had never experienced before. In addition to being fun and weird to navigate, the only help was the handprints on the glass so you could not walk into something, uh, it offered an unusual way to see yourself. You turn the corner, and because of the angles, you would be looking at yourself from the side or from the back in a way that you can't from just one or two mirrors. It was like looking at another person in a gathering or in a crowd, except it was yourself. And it was like, oh, that's what I look like from that angle. The specific setup, they just provided this 360-degree perspective allowing people to see themselves differently. And this got me thinking of the analogy that James uses, as Scott read for us, of the mirror of God's Word. And in this mirror, which James calls the perfect law, the law of liberty, it reveals ourselves to ourselves, and in a way that no other mirror does. Looking into God's revelation of himself, looking into the knowledge of God, looking into the plan of God's redemption through Jesus Christ— It reflects back to us who we are on the inside. The knowledge of God is like looking into the knowledge of God, is like looking into a mirror that reflects back our hearts. The knowledge of God provides a needed perspective of our thoughts, of our desires, of our emotions, of our affections. Every time we come face to face with God through His Word, we are read even as we read it. As one theologian so famously wrote, nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And we begin with the knowledge of God, we must begin with the knowledge of God, we must know who God is, and we can only do so by looking into God's Word. And as, we are, as soon as we are confronted with the knowledge of God, our very selves are revealed. It's inevitable. It's an, an unavoidable outcome. No matter our age, no matter where we're from, no matter our stage of life, no matter our religious background, no matter what we've done, the mirror of the knowledge of God reveals, exposes, reflects back. How so? Well, by virtue of our response to God as he reveals himself to us. Every single one of us this morning, depending on how we respond to what we hear about God in his word, will tell us about our hearts. As God reveals himself to us, our hearts are revealed to all. Our response to the knowledge of God reveals our hearts. It's always been true for all people in all places at all times, and that will become apparent. As we look back again to God's revealing himself to one of the ancient world's superpowers and of his country. So if you want to know who you really are, look with me into the mirror of the knowledge of God. Our response to the knowledge of God reveals our hearts. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 8. It's page 50 in the Blue Bibles. We're into the second of the ten blows or strikes or plagues against Egypt from the Lord. So Exodus chapter 8 is where we are this morning as we continue in our series. I'm going to be reading through uh, chapter 8, 1 through 15. So turn there, page 50, Exodus 8, verses 1 through 15. Let's pray before we read that together. Lord, would you grant us the eagerness that we hear, that we heard, through the psalmist who expressed how valuable your word is, more to be treasured than this world's riches, how sweet your word is, more to be desired than the ancient world's most delectable delights. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to approach your word as you reveal yourself to us in the way of the psalmist. And I pray, Lord, that it would become clear to me and to all of us the condition of our hearts as we evaluate our response to you based on what we come to know about yourself. So reveal yourself to us by your Spirit, through your word, for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. So Exodus 8, the second plague, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs, shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to Yahweh about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the account that we've just read is season one, episode two of The Plagues. As a recap from last week, recall that the plagues unfold in three cycles, with three plagues in each, concluding with a grand finale of the death of the firstborn, also known as Passover. As we progress through these ten blows against Egypt, we're going to see some pretty consistent themes. The Lord seems content to patiently reveal who he is through Pharaoh and this nation. And it will be good for us to be confronted again and again with the stunning reality of who the God is that we worship and serve. If we rush through them, we'll miss the unfolding drama of what it would have been like to be Moses and Aaron and the Israelites awaiting their redemption from God at the same time, there will also be different nuances drawn from each of the plagues, which is a good reason to take them one at a time. So I encourage you to lean in to the repetition and the progression as we go. If we do so, I trust we'll be vexed at Pharaoh's uh, trickery and thus rejoice all the more when he's defeated. We'll be perplexed at the intersection of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, thus humble ourselves before the God who is far above us. Not to mention, be absolutely mesmerized at the sheer power of God Most High, who demonstrates over and over that he is Lord and that he is to be worshipped above all. This and more is on display in Season 1, Episode 2 of the Plagues, which begins differently than Episode 1. In the first plague, Moses is told to go to a certain place and to wait for Pharaoh. But in the second, as you heard from verse 1, he is sent to go into Pharaoh. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh. And here again, let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. As the Lord continues to make himself known to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart continues to be made known to all. Because our response to the knowledge of God is what reveals our hearts. In particular, how we respond to the knowledge of God's judgments reveals our hearts. How we respond to the knowledge of God's judgments reveal our hearts. Consider with me, Just I'm going to break this down. ...God through his judgments and how in turn they reveal hearts in verses 1 through 8. In the opening two verses, we know that God is gracious even in and through his judgments. How so? Because God warns Pharaoh. If Pharaoh refuses to let Israel go there's going to be a consequence. Where the opposite would then be true, if Pharaoh does let Israel go, there won't be a consequence. So Pharaoh is fully informed as to what will happen, depending on his response, which God is under no obligation to reveal. That's why it's gracious. There's no surprises for Pharaoh in this plague. The Lord was gracious to warn, even through his judgment. What else do we know about God through his judgments? We know that his judgments are fitting. They're never arbitrary. The judgment always fits the sin. Uh, A few weeks ago, if any of you are baseball fans, there was a big uh, bench clearing, bullpen clearing uh, episode in one of the baseball games, and everyone's on the field, and there was a brawl, and people are shouting at each other, and managers are screaming in the face of umpires, That's not what God's wrath, God's anger is like. It's not a fly off the handle. It's just, it's settled. It is suitable. The first two plagues against Egypt involve the Nile. In the first plague, the Nile was turned to blood, which is surely judgment against the people who wanted to shed the blood of Hebrew children by drowning them in the river in the second plague the Nile is involved again as 8:3 tells us and from the same river God brings a second judgment upon the nation that has so harassed his firstborn son Israel later pharaoh and his army would be drowned in water to complete the judgment as God brings Israel up from the grave to the new land of life and promise so from this plague of frogs we also know that the Lord's judgments there's grace in them there is suitability, fittingness to God's judgments. And we also know from the plague of frogs that through God's judgments, he is the true Lord of creation, that there's none like him. How so? Well, there are two reasons that we can draw that conclusion of God's judgment from the strange plague of frogs. First, notice in 8.3 that Moses is commanded to say to Pharaoh, the Nile shall swarm with frogs. And if you're paying very close attention, maybe you're looking at some cross-references in your Bible, you've already seen it, does this ring any bells? Have we ever seen a phenomenon in Scripture where we are told that God caused something to swarm? Yeah, Genesis 1.20. From the account of God creating the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth, it says, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. A little more subtle is Exodus 1-7. I'm translating it a little bit more literally here. But the people of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This Yahweh, this God of the Hebrews, is Lord of creation. He is the one who formed and filled the heavens and the earth. He's the one who filled the land of Egypt with his people in keeping his promise to make them a great nation. He's the one who filled the land with Egypt with the frogs. Such is his rule and reign, his power, and his authority. If he wants to explode the frog population of the Nile so that they will fill the whole land of Egypt, that's not hard for him. He can do that, and he will do that so as to fill the earth with the knowledge of his great name. But the question that may be on many people's minds is why frogs? Why those in particular? Well. To bring another idol of Egypt to its knees, along with all who worship false gods. I quote here, this helped me, trust it will help you. If we are to understand the full significance of this plague, we must recognize that a goddess of Egypt was involved in the judgment, the goddess Hecate, who was always pictured with the head, and often the head and body, of a frog. Since Hecate was embodied in the frog, the frog was sacred in Egypt. It could not be killed, and consequently, there was nothing the Egyptians could do about this horrible and ironic proliferation of the goddess. They were forced to loathe the symbols of their depraved worship, but they could not kill them, and when the frogs died, their decaying bodies must have turned the towns and countryside into a stinking horror. You want to worship frogs, Egypt? Well, the Lord gives them over to the object of their worship. Hecate, according to Egyptian religion, was the spouse of the creator. So as the creator fashioned human beings on his potter's wheel, this is Egyptian religion and belief, she would breathe the breath of life into them, thus giving them a soul. Do you hear again the demonic plagiarism that Satan seeks to emulate with absolutely no originality? For Egyptian woman, Hecate became the goddess of childbirth. And women may have worn frog amulets during pregnancy in hopes of the goddess's favor as they sought to give birth to a healthy living child. As with all forms of idolatry, it's an effort to control. There's only two sources of power, from above, and so which do we submit ourselves to in God, or from below, which we try to take for ourselves. If the Egyptians could appease the god of the Nile, they could control the water and food supplies. If they could appease the goddess of fertility, they could control the outcome of childbearing. And given the effects of the curse on, of, of sin on creation, and as well as childbearing, these are not small temptations. As one pastor notes, the idol of Hecate is alive and well in our current culture as we seek to take control of life and death around childbearing. On the one hand, we have developed and implement various reproductive technologies to assist in having children. Some which go far beyond the bounds of what Christians could and should ethically consider. And, on the other hand, we continue to abort approximately 300 children every single day in our country, where there is still no law to protect the lives of the preborn in the womb. Alive and well, our efforts to take control without any look or trust in the Lord our God. And what this plague revealed to Egypt, to Israel, and to us is that in all of the pain and the suffering and the fear and worry surrounding the womb, it is only to the Lord God that we should and must turn. He is our only source of true hope and help, for he is Lord of life, who has life of himself, who breathed life into Adam. He is the true potter who forms us, each and every single one, in our mother's womb. And this humiliation of another of Egypt's idols reveals to Pharaoh and to this nation and to us that through Yahweh's judgment, we know that he alone is gold. And unlike the gods of the nations, he cannot be controlled, and we are to make no attempt to try. And the way that this is conveyed is funny. I never thought this would ever happen where I would be translating ancient biblical Hebrew, and laugh out loud, which I did as I was studying this week, just picturing the annoying chaos these frogs would have created. I'm reading a, a Jewish commentary, a popular Jewish commentary, just out of curiosity uh, to see where the divergences are as we believe that the Messiah has come. And I came across this song that Jewish children sing at Passover meals. One morning when Pharaoh woke, there were frogs on his head and frogs in his bed. Frogs on his nose, frogs on his toes, frogs there, frogs here, frogs were jumping everywhere. And it wasn't just Pharaoh, it was everyone from the highest to the lowest, as verses 3 to 6 tell us. Then all shall swarm with frogs, they shall come up onto your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, and into the houses of your servants and your people, and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. You couldn't go to bed. You couldn't get dressed in the morning. You couldn't even make your breakfast without frogs hopping and croaking and pooping everywhere. That's just what it would have been like. They were under the pillow. They were in the cupboards. They were in the stove. He couldn't sit down, not even Pharaoh, without one jumping into his lap. With every amphibian sighting in this judgment of Yahweh, Hecate is being humiliated. The Egyptians are learning their gods are nothing compared to this God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. Through his judgments, God is showing that he's gracious. He's showing that he's just. And he is showing that he is Lord. And by our response to this knowledge, we also know our own hearts. Consider Pharaoh's response to everything that's unfolding here. And now we see the mirror at work. Here we see the reflection. Yahweh graciously warns, Pharaoh doesn't listen. The writer doesn't even take the time to record the response. We just know that between Moses going to Pharaoh and Aaron stretching out his hand, Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. Refusing to heed the gracious warning of God's judgment reveals a folly that is not unique to Pharaoh. I mentioned last week that the plagues of Egypt reappear in the book of Revelation during God's end times judgment. Blood is turned to water. There's darkness. There are pains and sores. And then Revelation 16.12 reads of one of the bowls of judgment that would be poured out by one of the angels. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, here that is an unholy trinity, out of the mouth came three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Yet rather than repent as a result of these judgments, rather than heed the warning of the eternal judgment to come, Revelation tells us they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. This is the height of folly. God has appointed a judge over you. God has appointed a judge over the whole earth and he's given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. His name is Jesus. He died. He rose. He is coming again. And to go on living as though this is not true, as though God has not warned us graciously to flee from the wrath of judgment to come, that, friends, is folly. Jesus told us as plainly as God told Pharaoh through Moses about how to avoid God's just judgments. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But it need not be so. Come to Christ. He is the way, the means of fleeing from the wrath that God has graciously warned us is to come. And how you respond to that will tell you everything you need to know about your own heart. As we look into this mirror of the knowledge of God. Now along with the refusal of heeding these words, of repenting, of the obedience of faith, is the response of pride. How we respond to God's judgments can reveal folly. How we respond to God's judgments can also reveal arrogance. Look at verse 7 we're told that the magicians again did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt once more i believe this to be spiritual forces at work within the idolatrous kingdom of egypt tapped into by pharaoh's magicians they're trying to keep up with yahweh they try to keep bringing him down a level and they're trying to keep raising themselves up a level that's what we do we we try to humanize god we try to trivialize our rebellion against him Whatever the God of the Hebrews can do, they would boast, we can do as well. We have our own source of power. We have our own ways of being like God. He's really nothing special. But again, it's all a farce. The serpents were swallowed up by Aaron's staff. While they could somehow duplicate turning water to blood, they could not reverse the plague, only add to it. And while they could somehow duplicate multiplying frogs, they couldn't reverse this plague either, only add to it as well. No matter how much the kingdom of darkness appeals to our flesh, that we can dethrone God and take his place, it's a delusion. It's an illusion to keep us blind to the truth. There's no human capacity or spiritual power from below that can overcome the Lord or his judgments. And apparently that becomes clear to Pharaoh, and in the next plague will become clear to his magicians as well. But in 8.8, we have another aspect of Pharaoh's heart revealed as he is exposed to the knowledge of God through his judgments. first, there's folly. He doesn't listen. Then there's pride. He tries to demonstrate that Yahweh is nothing special. And then, there's this desperation. And it's a desperation born by what I'm going to borrow from Paul to call worldly sorrow. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. He does the unthinkable from his perspective, and he says, plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice the Yahweh. This is quite a turnaround from the guy who back in chapter 5 says, I don't know who this Yahweh is. Well, he's getting to know Yahweh. But he has no interest in this being in any meaningful, intimate, relational way. He's a politician with a second national crisis on his hands. One that neither he nor his magicians nor the gods of Egypt seem to be able to do anything about. So he goes to Moses and he goes to Aaron and he asks them to entreat, to to plead with Yahweh to reverse this blow against him and his nation. Notice that he doesn't seem to consider doing it himself. Notice also that the consequences of the plague is not enough to drive Pharaoh to obedience. He won't obey Yahweh's command To leave Israel alone unless Yahweh leaves Egypt alone. He's bargaining with God. If he does this, then I will do that. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? It also reveals a lot about the condition of his heart. He's only concerned about the consequences of the wrong that he has done. Not the fact that he is guilty before God that he needs to humble himself before the Lord of heaven and earth, which is being demonstrated by all the hopping madness that's going on all around him. This is the type of sorrow that Paul calls worldly in 2 Corinthians 7.10. It's a grief that produces death, not a grief that leads to salvation. Worldly sorrow is self-centered. Worldly sorrow wants relief from consequences only. Worldly sorrow wants life to continue as it did before, Worldly sorrow bargains, and worldly sorrow only lasts long enough until there's relief, until the heart gets its way. Do you see yourself in any of this? Are you ignoring the reality of God's judgments? Are you arrogantly operating under the impression that you can somehow circumvent God? Is your repentance just a charade to keep your spouse at bay or maybe your parents or maybe your pastors or maybe your Christian friends? That would be a foolish, dangerous trajectory to continue. And if this is what is being shown to you this morning, this is God's kindness, even if it stings. For he would have you come to himself. He desires that none would be None would perish, but all would believe Christ, that you would receive him and be called one of his sons and one of his daughters. If that seems too good to be true, that such sins as folly and pride and worldly repentance could be washed away by the blood of Christ, then consider with me God's mercies. Our hearts are revealed not only by looking into the knowledge of God through his judgments, but also through his grace and compassion. How we respond to God's judgments reveals our hearts, but so does how we respond to God's mercy. It also reveals our hearts. As the Lord continues to make himself known to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart continues to be made known to all, and this helps us to see what's going on inside of us as well. Consider with me then what we know about God through his mercies and how they reveal hearts in the second half of the text, verses 9 through 15. First, note with me that in God's mercy, he provides a mediator. Look at verse 9. Moses says to Pharaoh in response to this request, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. This is both brilliant and merciful. You pick, Pharaoh. You choose the time. So that no one can say that Moses manipulated things or Aaron manipulated things or this is just a trick of the Israelites who snuck out in the night and gathered up all the frogs so that they would think make us think it was Yahweh. You decide. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Or as another would translate it, by morning. Like right away. He's desperate. And he's demanding. There's no humility. There's no, as it would please Yahweh. There's no, I'm unworthy to even make such a request. It's just, get it done, Moses. No. Pronto. Almost like there's an expectation that the Lord should do this for him and for Egypt. To respond to God's mercies as though we were owed them is to miss the point entirely. Nevertheless, in God's mercy, he reveals his uniqueness. Moses says in verses 10 and 11, be it as you say. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. And this will make absolutely crystal clear that Hecate is not a god, that the gods of the Nile are not gods, that Pharaoh is not a divine son of the gods. The Egyptians would go to bed that night with the frogs hopping and croaking on the floor and on the bed, and they would wake up the next morning with every single one of them dead, except the ones that lived in the Nile. And they would know that this was Yahweh's doing that his rule and reign is so utterly complete and so precise that whenever he wants and wherever he wants, he demonstrates his control over the creatures that the Egyptians thought were in the control of their gods. And at the same time, the Lord demonstrates his uniqueness in showing mercy to Pharaoh and to Egypt at all. That's what's truly astonishing here. The Lord knows that Pharaoh is going to harden his heart as a direct result of his mercy, and he still does what Pharaoh wants when Pharaoh wants. I wouldn't treat Pharaoh this way after everything he's done, would you? This shows us how unlike we are from God and how unlike God is from us. You know those verses in Isaiah that are often quoted? We were talking about these recently. I think it was one of our, our pastor meetings. Those verses in Isaiah, it's Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Just nod if those are familiar to you. You've heard those before. Usually... We quote those or we think of those verses in relation to attributes like God's power or his wisdom or his sovereignty. But that's not what Isaiah is talking about. Sure, we can go to other places in Scripture to show us that God's power and wisdom and sovereignty are so much beyond ourselves. But that's not what Isaiah is driving at here. In context, listen to how he is saying He is not like us. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. According to this portion of Isaiah, It's the grace. It's the compassion. It's the mercy of God that should blow our minds the most. That's what shines through even here in the removal of this plague. God is merciful to Pharaoh. It's not merely a demonstration of the Lord's reign in this judgment. It's a demonstration of the Lord's mercy in taking it away. So if you've ever questioned whether God's mercy is sufficient to put away your sin, the Scriptures absolutely confirm to us that this is what should stagger us about God the most. It isn't just words. It isn't something that just just seems too good to be true. It is true. God reveals himself to us in his mercies. We also see God's mercy in answered prayer. This is a pivotal moment. Not just in this plague episode, but in everything else that will follow. Moses has put all of his chips into the middle of the table. He's gone all in with Pharaoh. You pick. So in verse 12, Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried out to Yahweh. It's the same uh, emphatic crying out to God as the Israelites offered up before their taskmasters. He cried out to Yahweh about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. I love Moses' boldness here. I love Moses' dependence here. I think he's growing in his faith, believing that Yahweh is, I am who I am, and I am who causes to be. He believes that Pharaoh's request is not too difficult for the Lord, so he prays big, as one person writes, not so much interested in that Pharaoh, the plague, be removed from, from Egypt, but so that they would know that there's no one like Yahweh. And in God's mercy, these are stunning words. Verse 13, Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. What? This is incredible. To read of someone having an audience Like this, with this one whom no one is like? Brothers and sisters, in the mercy of God, through the mediator of Jesus Christ, unfathomable as it may be to fully grasp, we have an audience with this one. It's a mercy that none of us deserve to experience even once, let alone a mercy that we can avail ourselves of at any moment. And it isn't just that we actually have an audience before God's throne of grace. It's that he listens to us. And it isn't just that he listens. He actually answers. Yahweh heard Moses and answered Moses. A specific, timely, significant request was granted by the great I Am to his servant. It's stunning. I have a pastor friend who says he finds no greater encouragement to pray than hearing of answered prayer. Church, this is just one of the many, many, countless examples in Scripture, not to mention experience, where we can see God respond directly to the requests of his people. Now that we would not neglect, as often as we do, this incredible mercy. How we respond to such mercies, it reveals our hearts. What do you see? of yourself as you look into this mirror of the knowledge of God. Sadly, the warmth of God's mercies that melts the hearts of some bakes the hearts of others. What seemed on the surface a right response to the judgment of God when Pharaoh says, I will let the people go to sacrifice to Yahweh, Was nothing of the sort in response to the mercies of God. When Pharaoh saw that there was respite, verse 15, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. If we want to know our own heart, look at how we respond to both the judgments and the mercies of God. How we respond to such mercies reveals our hearts. How we respond to such judgments reveal our hearts. If we want to know the hearts of others, look at how they respond to both the judgments and mercies of God. In Pharaoh, we have a most tragic response. When he experienced mercy, Think of this. When he experienced mercy, his heart became even heavier and duller and sluggish to Yahweh. He still thinks he's in control. He's made a request of Yahweh's prophet, and it worked. He's dodged a divine bullet and thought God could be manipulated He made a mistake that so many make. He confused mercy for blessing. But he doesn't know how close to the precipice he truly is. He doesn't know that at the same time as he is responsible for his actions, that Yahweh is sovereign over his heart. He doesn't know this is happening just as Yahweh said it would. He doesn't know that the very next plague is going to come with absolutely zero warning. Because God's patience has a holy end. And though he is gracious to warn, one day judgment will overtake us. Francis is a God who is not to be trifled with, with respect either to his mercies or his judgments. His judgments are fearful and we ought to flee from them. In his astonishing mercy, he has given us a way of escape that ought to be embraced to believe in Jesus, whom he sent. In Christ, on the cross where he died, the judgment and mercy of God meet. The holiness and love of God meet. The power and wisdom of God meet. All of his attributes are on display at the cross. And how we respond when we look there, where we see the judgment and the mercy of God, will tell us absolutely everything about ourselves that truly matters. What do you see reflected back at you when you look there? I turned back shrug of the shoulders? A shaking fist? A middle finger? Someone running from God? Someone railing at God in anger? What do you see as you look in to the judgment and mercy of God as displayed in the cross of Christ? Or maybe you see someone who is broken Someone who is on their knees, confessing their sin, rejoicing in the mercy of God, running with open arms towards the Father through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. What do you see? And do you see love? Vast as the ocean, as the hymn writer put it, loving kindness as the flood, as the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us His precious blood. Do you see someone who is overwhelmed by grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above when heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed the guilty world in love If for the first time you're seeing your need of Christ then confess that to God receive him now and he will give you the right to be called a child of God If you see again just how much you are still in need of him because there are still these aspects of what we see in Pharaoh, even in our own hearts. Remember that all who come to him, he will never, ever cast out. And let us praise his name together for who he is and for all that he has done for us in Christ. We have an opportunity now to respond to God and His judgments and in His mercies. So, Mark, would you come and lead us with Shelley and Rebecca, that we might join our voices together and rejoice together in the mercy that God has shown to us when we deserved judgment because of what Christ has done by dying in our place. Please stand to sing in response.